The book of Zechariah. Turn there in your Bibles with me to Zechariah. And if you need a Bible tonight, these guys have uh, Bibles as they hand them out. Uh, as they go up and down the aisles with Bibles in hand, just raise a hand if you'd like to receive a Bible. Tonight we're going to conclude the book of Zechariah by looking at the last two chapters of one of these minor prophets who at the age of 17 or 18, it is believed, that's how young he is, probably when he is inspired by the Holy Spirit to pen these words. He writes more about the first and second coming of Jesus Christ than any of the other Old Testament prophets. He writes more than all the minor prophets combined. Last week, we left off at the end of chapter 12 with the Jews who will come to see the Lord at the end of the tribulation period. And when they see the Lord, chapter 12, verse 10 says that they will look upon me, as the Lord writes here in the first person through Zechariah, then he switches to third person. He says, they will look upon me, the one they have pierced, and they will mourn for him as one who mourns for an only child and grieve bitterly for him as one grieves for a firstborn son. And the reason why they will mourn and grieve is because predominantly, for the most part, uh, the Jews today do not believe in Jesus as Messiah. That is to say, the majority of them. However, there are many who do and many who are coming more and more so to faith in Jesus as Messiah. But on the day that the Lord returns, there will be a great number of Jews who have not believed him to be Messiah, but when they see him, when they lay eyes on him, they will be so convicted and they will be so in grief over the fact that they had never really truly accepted him that they will grieve bitterly and they will mourn as for an only child. But there is great promise for the Jewish people as a result of this. So their grieving and their mourning is not over their own uh, fate as much as it is just kind of a a weeping and mourning of conviction and relief at the same time that they will profoundly put their faith and trust in Christ as they behold him uh, when he comes again. So that's kind of the context where we left off. Let's pray and then we'll kind of recalibrate ourselves for these uh, final two chapters as we look at uh, chapter 13 and 14, which are just simply packed with many details concerning the second coming of Jesus Christ. So if, you're, if you love that kind of thing about the second coming of Christ and you love studying the Bible in relation to prophecy related to a second coming, then you're in the right place tonight. That's all I got to say. Snow or no snow. I'm just thankful for rain. I just try to be grateful. Anyway, let's, uh, let's pray. Lord, thank you for this time. We can study together these last few chapters of Zechariah. We We look forward to your return, Lord. We don't know if we will be that generation that sees your face, that hears the trumpet, and then sees your face coming in the clouds. But, uh, Lord, whether we go to be with you through death or we go to be with you in life because you come again and you take us from this earth, either way, we look forward to spending eternity with you. And we thank you that you love us, that you would not only die for us, but then you would tell us these things so we could be prepared, so we could be ready so we could know some things in advance concerning your second coming. Father, may you use this time in your word to challenge us and to equip us and to encourage us, to prepare us for your imminent return. I thank you, Lord, for each person here tonight and those who are watching online. Bless our time in your word. We pray together in Jesus' name. Everybody said, Amen. 
If you'll notice here, when we begin chapter 13, you see the phrase, on that day, and that is going to be the, the key phrase that is often repeated in the last couple of chapters of Zechariah. In fact, ten times Zechariah will use that phrase, on that day, between chapters 13 and 14, and it is simply a phrase that in general terms refers to the Lord's return. It either means specifically on that day that he comes again, or it means in general the day of the Lord after he returns. And so again, just trying to uh, get our bearings straight, when we look at the timeline of end time events, uh, starting with the resurrection of Jesus, and then he's here on earth for 40 days, then he ascends into heaven, that's what the Bible tells us. And from the time that he ascends into heaven, he hands ministry off to the early church, Acts 2 says there were 120 gathered in an upper room, and that was the sum total of the whole church, of all believers. It was about 120, the Bible says in Acts. And it begins the church age. From the time that Jesus ascends and hands ministry off to the church. We now comprise that church. Out of the original 120 have, have come now uh, millions upon millions. I mean, those who call themselves Christians are about 1.1 billion around the world, but what really defines a Christian to some people might be debatable to us. But in, So how many actual believers in Jesus there are, and not just Christian in title? Uh, well, only the Lord knows that. But we're living in that church age now. And... There will come a day, the Bible says, when the Lord will sound a trumpet and He will receive His church from the earth to meet Him in the air. And then there will be seven years of tribulation upon the earth. He rescues us before that time so that we don't have to go through that period, but there will be seven years of His wrath that is unleashed upon the earth in order to get people's attention. Because people will still be able to get saved during that seven-year period of tribulation. Then following the seven years, he will return to the earth. And he will bring the saints with him. And then we will rule and reign with him for a thousand years on the earth. That's called the millennial kingdom, the thousand-year reign. Followed by then the lake of fire and the great white throne judgment. And then there will be a new heaven and a new earth. So the, the parts that we're primarily dealing with tonight in these closing two chapters have to do with the second coming of Christ when he comes to the earth. Now we're beyond the rapture as Zechariah looks down and he sees prophetically as, as the Lord gives him insight into these things. He's going to write here about the second coming of the Lord when he returns to the earth and brings those who have already died and been with him in heaven. He brings those saints with him to the earth to rule and reign. And then Zechariah also will touch here on this millennial period, this thousand year reign. So this is the time frame that we're talking about as Zechariah sees way beyond even where we are tonight. And so we're looking into um, detailed prophetic events here in this 13th chapter. And I'm just going to kind of enumerate these 10 times that he speaks about on that day. Because every time he begins a phrase or a sentence with that phrase, on that day, he's giving us insight into some elements about the return of Christ or the millennial kingdom in general. So when we look here together at verse 1, and we see the first time that that phrase is used, uh, we'll notice together that he speaks here about how there will be a cleansing fountain which really refers to how the Lord will bring forgiveness and cleansing to the people. And we read it as we closed at our Bible study last week, 
uh, just to kind of uh, get our hearts in the right place as we look here again at chapter 13, verse 1. It says, On that day, a fountain will be opened to the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and impurity. Now, some, you read some Bible commentaries and they say, well, there's going to be a literal fountain. And, and the Bible does speak, especially Ezekiel 47, it talks about a river, actually, that will flow from under the throne of God. And even Zechariah refers to it somewhat when we get further into the text tonight. And some will say this is a literal fountain, and perhaps it is, but it has to be more than that because it's not water that cleanses somebody from impurity. The ultimate cleansing work is only through Jesus Christ. And that's why, again, as I referred to last week, the hymn that uh, is so familiar to many of us, there is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins, and sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. So... You know, that song is not about a literal fountain. It's about the fountain that is ours because of our faith in Jesus Christ, that His blood flowed, and as a result of the sacrifice of the cross, we can have our sins forgiven and our hearts cleansed. And one of the things that happens here is that when people behold the Lord, when He comes again, is that those who have survived the tribulation period, and there will be survivors. We know for a fact there will be 144,000 Jews who will survive. That's what Revelation tells us. In addition, those who did not receive the mark of the beast or bow down and worship him, you know, we have to make room for people who have hidden themselves and, you know, built the cabin in Montana somewhere and they got the generator going and, you know, they got got the bags of rice and wheat and, you know, they're surviving during this time. And I think it'll be few. Uh, because, uh, you know, for many reasons, I, you know, I think that whatever you have is going to become everybody else's property pretty quickly, for one thing. Uh, but I think it's also going to be pretty hard to escape the punishment of uh, not worshiping the beast. But there will be some people probably who no doubt will be able to escape to some remote places, find shelter. And uh, then on the day that Jesus returns, they have come through the tribulation period. So there will be people on earth who will go into that thousand-year period, that millennial reign, and they will be living out their lives much like we live out our lives today. It'll be the saints who come back with Jesus who have a very different role. We're going to be ruling and reigning with Him. We'll have our glorified bodies. We won't experience death again. But otherwise, life in general will go on as it is now for those survivors who trust Christ... And go into that thousand-year millennial period, they're going to be getting married, having kids. And Isaiah says that if they die before they they live to be 100, they will thought to have died at a young age. So the earth is going to still be somewhat similar, although after the tribulation time, it'll be very different demographically. And cataclysmic events will happen on the earth to change the appearance of things. But beyond that, when the Lord returns, and perhaps He's going to do a dramatic makeover of the earth after the tribulation period, uh, before the new heaven and new earth, um, there's going to be life somewhat as usual. And one of the first orders of business is the cleansing work of the Lord for those who have come through the tribulation and have put their faith and trust in Christ. And then he says in verse 2, here's the second on that day. He says, on that day, I will banish the names of the idols from the land and they will be remembered no more, declares the Lord Almighty. So, again, for you note-takers, the second thing that that he speaks of here is on that day, idolatry will be abolished once and for all. 
I mean, idolatry has been always a part of Israel's history. It's been the reason that they were sent into captivity into Assyria. They were sent into captivity into Babylon. And uh, as idolatry continued to ruin the country, uh, the Lord would do what he did to get their attention. But he says, when he comes again, there's going to be no idolatry whatsoever in the land because Jesus is going to be on the throne and people are going to worship him. There's going to be nothing else and no one else to worship because now all eyes and all devotion will be on the Lord. He goes on to say also in verse 2 that I will remove both the prophets and the spirit of impurity from the land. And if anyone still prophesies, this is, this is a difficult verse, and this is um, kind of a scary verse too, but look what it says. And if anyone still prophesies, his father and mother, to whom he was born, will say to him, you must die, because you have told lies in the Lord's name. When he prophesies, his own parents will stab him. So again, not the most cheerful thing on a, on a rainy Wednesday night, but, um, but l- this is the idea. And, and Paul alludes to this in 1 Corinthians 13. He says, when he speaks about, the, um, about uh, in particular, in 1 Corinthians 13, he speaks about the gift of tongues, he speaks about the gift of prophecy, but he also talks about how a day when those things will cease. And in 1 Corinthians 13, verse 8, he says, where, the, where there are prophecies, they will cease, and where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Uh, and he speaks about when that which is perfect is come, that which is imperfect will pass away. So while the gifts of the Spirit are available now, when the Lord Jesus returns, there is no more need for the gifts because we're in the presence of the giver. Does everybody understand this? There's going to be no more need for the gift of prophecy because the prophet Messiah is present. King Jesus is Lord. We don't need somebody standing up giving a word of prophecy or someone speaking in tongues and having interpretation because then I shall know fully even as I am fully known. And we're in the presence of the Lord, of King Jesus. There's no more need for various gifts. So in general, what the text is implying to us is if people in that day when Jesus is present and he's on earth and he's ruling and reigning say that they have a prophetic word, why, they would just simply be a false prophet. Because there's no more need for that in the presence of the Lord Jesus. And so in that sense, if somebody says, oh yeah, I have a word from the Lord. No, 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 no. The word is flesh and among us now. So therefore, the implication is that that person would be a false prophet and therefore he should die. So we're going to kind of go back to the way that things were in the Old Testament days. If somebody was proven not to be a prophet because they prophesied lies, then they were killed. That's one way that you purge people who don't necessarily have a genuine word from the Lord. They won't do that again. And it'll be a big deterrent for anybody else doing it again. Well, verse 4. He says, On that day, here's the third time he uses that phrase, On that day every prophet will be ashamed of his prophecies. Uh, ashamed of his prophetic vision. He will not put on a prophet's garment of hair in order to deceive. Uh, he will not say, I am, he will say, rather, I am not a prophet, I am a farmer. The land has seen, has been my livelihood since my youth. So uh, that would be number three. On that day, false prophets will be removed once and for all. 
and those who were prophesying in that day, and perhaps even those who, who had a, a, a prophetic gifting that really was from the Lord, they will just kind of return to farming. They, they will, they'll take off the prophet's garment. They won't have a need to give a word from the Lord again because the Lord is ruling and reigning himself from Jerusalem. So uh, no more prophets, and particularly the false prophets will be removed once and for all. And then things shift here in verse 6, and it's a difficult transition, and so there's a couple of interpretations on this, but I'll I'll give you the one that I land on. But verse 6 says, if someone asks him, and there's the difficulty, who's the him in the text, what are these wounds on your body? He will answer, the wounds I was given at the house of my friends. Now, if you put that verse together with the hymn in, back in chapter 12, verse 10, as I opened up the Bible study tonight, it says, They will look on me, the one they have pierced, and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only child. Then clearly the hymn here in verse 6 of chapter 13 is the Lord Jesus. There are some who will say, no, the hymn refers to the prophet that is spoken of in the previous couple of verses. When it talks about how the prophet will be ashamed, and he says, I'm not a prophet, uh, but, but it doesn't really go together. There's a shift here. And um, one, one respected um, theologian whose name is Merrill Unger, he used to be the head of Old Testament department at Dallas Theological Seminary, he even wrote a whole commentary in the book of Zechariah. He, he attaches this sixth verse of chapter 13 to the hymn of chapter 12, verse 10, meaning this is none other than a reference to Jesus. And you put the two together and it makes sense that they will look, the Jews will see the, the Lord returning, and they will, they will look upon the one that they have pierced. And they will weep bitterly as one weeps for an only child. And then, putting it together, they will ask him, where did you receive these marks? Where did you receive these marks, these wounds on your body? And he will answer the wounds I was given at the house of my friends. The Lord Jesus was crucified at the house of his friends. I mean, literally, it was all of us who nailed him to the cross. But, you know, the Romans were the ones who drove the nails. The Jews were the ones who called for his crucifixion. And all of us, and the sin of all of us, ultimately put him there on the cross. Although it was God's will to crush him, it was the Father's plan for all of this to be put in motion, even before the foundation of the world, so that we might be saved. But when you put these verses together, it's pretty clear that what's happening here is they're going to look upon Jesus and he still bears the marks of his crucifixion. And I mentioned this, I think, last week, that when John sees Jesus in Revelation, he sees him as a lamb who, as if he had been slain. That again, the only man-made thing in heaven will be the marks of the crucifixion that Jesus sustained at the hands of sinful men. And he comes back to the earth bearing his mark. Because we know that even after he appeared to his disciples a week later when they were meeting together, John tells us that, that they, um, what Thomas in particular, had doubted. And Jesus even said, put your hand on my side, see the nail prints in my hands. So he even had the evidence of his crucifixion after he had risen from the dead in his glorified body. And when the Jews see him, they will ask, where would you get these marks? And he will remind them, these are the wounds I was given at the house of my friends. And then when you look further into, chapter, into verse 7, we see the link as well, because, uh, and sometimes verse and chapter and, sub, and 
little subtitles can kind of break up the flow of Scripture, but you have to remember that originally when Scripture was written, there were no chapter breaks, there were no verses, and there were no subtitles like you have in your Bible. And pretty clearly, when you get into verse 7, uh, we know that this refers to Jesus. How do we know this? Because Jesus is going to refer to himself by quoting from verse 7. So look at what it says. It says, Awake, O sword, against my shepherd. Against the man who was close to me, declares the Lord Almighty. Now notice this. The Lord, these are all capital letters. This is His proper name. This is Yahweh. This is God. He is speaking about my shepherd. He says, the man who was close to me, and some literal translations speak of it as who is equal with me. And then he says this, strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered, and I will turn my hand against the little ones. Now, in the margin of your Bible, just write down Matthew 26, verse 31. Matthew 26, verse 31. This is what Jesus said. Then Jesus told them, this is when he was speaking to his own Disciples, He said, this very night you will all fall away on account of me, for it is written, and then he quotes Zechariah 13, 7, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. So Jesus speaks about this verse as applying to himself. So we now know that clearly here in Zechariah 13, 7, this shepherd, God's shepherd, the father's shepherd is none other than Jesus. And you link it with verse 6, and it makes it pretty clear. This is all a reference to Jesus. He bears the marks of his crucifixion. And this is God's shepherd. This is the Father's shepherd. This is Jesus. And Jesus will be stricken. He will be crucified. And you remember what happened, the events in the New Testament, the Gospels. When Jesus was crucified, all his disciples abandoned him. All his disciples abandoned him. They watched from a distance. Peter even denies knowing him three times. They want nothing to do with him at that point because they realize if we're too closely associated with him, we're liable to be strung up on a cross ourselves. And Jesus predicts it in advance. He says, you're all going to fall away on account of me. And he quotes here from Zechariah 13, 7. The sheep will be scattered. Now, this is interesting because this tells us that this is, again, the Father's will because he says here, that this is against my shepherd, and he says, strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered, and I will turn my hand against the little ones. So Isaiah 53, 4 says, we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him. Isaiah 53, 10 says, it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. This is all the divine plan of God. This was all... Uh, prophesied in advance in Acts 2.23, Peter said that the crucifixion of Jesus Christ was done by the, by the uh, predetermined counsel and foreknowledge of God. This was the Father's plan in advance that Jesus should die for the sins of the world. And then when the shepherd is stricken, the sheep will scatter. And God will turn His hand against the little ones, which is an implication of persecution and martyrdom that will quickly follow on the heels of the crucifixion of Christ. Christians in the first century will be martyred and persecuted because Christianity will then become something that is a threat not only to the Roman kingdom and not only to the Roman Empire, but also to, um, to those who do not believe. And then continuing here in verse 8, he says, "...in the whole land declares the Lord, two-thirds will be struck down and perish, yet one-third will be left in it. 
This third I will bring into the fire. I will refine them like silver and test them like gold. They will call on my name and I will answer them. I will say, they are my people. And they will say, the Lord is our God. Now this quite honestly answers the question, what happens to the Jews? What happens to the Jews? Well, what happens is, the implication here is, that there will be two-thirds, he says this in verse 8, two-thirds of the Jews will die during the tribulation period. One-third will come through the tribulation period, having been refined, if you will, like silver, tested like gold, through the fire. And it will be that third that beholds the face of the Lord Jesus when He returns to the earth, And therefore then, God refers to them as, they are my people, that's the way this chapter ends, and they will say, the Lord is our God. Now, keep something there in Zechariah 14, but I want you to go over to the book of Romans, because there's something here that Paul writes about in relation to the Jews that is important for us to see in context to this passage, so that we can understand what Paul means in Romans 11. And what Zechariah means in Zechariah 13. So if if you're able to go to Romans chapter 11, turn there with me and just notice a couple of verses as uh, Paul speaks about how God is not done with the Jewish people. They have not been written off. The Christian church has not replaced Israel. There's such a thing called replacement theology. It is a false theology. There's some who believe that, oh, yeah, God is done with the Jewish people and He's done with the nation of Israel, that it was all just in play until Messiah could come and now it's all about Gentiles and Christians, and that's not true at all. In Romans 11, look at verse 25, Paul writes this. He says, I do not want you to be ignorant of this mystery, brothers, so that you may not be conceited. Israel has experienced a hardening in part until the full number of Gentiles has come in, and so all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the Deliverer will come from Zion, this is Jesus, and He will turn godlessness away from Jacob, and this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. And he's quoting there from Isaiah and from Jeremiah. He combines a couple of verses there. But notice, he says, look, I don't want you to be ignorant. God is not done with Israel. There's going to come a day when all Israel will be saved. Now, what does that mean? Every single Jewish person will believe? Well, when you compare that with Zechariah 13, what he's saying is that the third that survives the tribulation period, all of those which comprise all of Israel... We know that there will be at least 144,000 who are believers during the tribulation period. And all others who survive will behold Jesus. They will see Him and they will believe. And God says, they are my people and they will say, the Lord is my God. And that's what Paul is referring to here in Romans chapter 11. He says, look, Israel's only experienced a hardening in part until the full number of Gentiles has come in. Now, we don't know what that number is. What is the full number of Gentiles? God knows what that magic number is. That Israel has experienced a hardening in part so that God can open up the kingdom to Gentiles. Now, most of us are Gentiles. We do have some Jewish believers in our church. But for the most part, listen, you got saved because of a window of opportunity where God has delayed long enough that as many Gentiles as possible might get saved. There's going to come a day when there's going to be the last, whatever that perfect number is, there's going to be one last Gentile that is going to be saved. And then the Lord's going to be like, okay, that's it. That's done. That's the last one. And then he returns. So this is an incredible time in which we live because that window has only been kept open 
Because the Lord is not slow in keeping His promises, as some understand slowness. But He is patient, not wanting any to perish, but all to come to repentance. That's what the Bible teaches. The window's been kept open so that as many people as possible might come to faith in Jesus Christ. But, going back here to Zechariah, what happens is, at the end of chapter 13, is that he tells us that there will be a third of the Jews who will survive the tribulation period. Tragically, very sadly, two-thirds will perish, as Revelation tells us in relation to all peoples of the earth. There will be billions, with a B, of people who will perish during that tribulation period, as all of these cataclysmic events happen, and the earth is in upheaval. And the throw, in the throes of labor, if you will, because of the wrath of God that is coming. But those who survive, and there will be a third of the Jewish people who will survive, and they will look upon the one they have pierced, and they will weep bitterly as one beeps, weeps for an only child who has died. And they will ask him, where did you receive these marks in your body, these wounds in your body? He will say, I received them at the, at the house of my friends. And then all Israel will be saved when they behold their Messiah and they put their faith and trust in him. And they believe in Him as their Lord and their God. So this is good news because God is still working in the hearts of all of us. And He is still working in the hearts of Jewish people. And there will come a day at the end of the tribulation period when literally all Israel will be saved, although the number of those who are still living will be greatly diminished. And when you look into chapter 14 with me, here's what it says. A day of the Lord is coming when your plunder will be divided among you. I will gather all the nations to Jerusalem. Now, this seems to be a reference here to the battle of Armageddon. I will gather all the nations to Jerusalem to fight against it. The city will be captured, the houses ransacked, and the women raped. Half of the city will go into exile, but the rest of the people will not be taken from the city. Now, this is just a description of man's inhumanity to man, that when the nations converge against Israel, in particular against Jerusalem, they will be just doing this horrible kind of stuff that goes on in the name of war, um, even today, where the city is ransacked, uh, people will be captured, uh, women raped, all of this tragic, uh, horrible stuff that is going to happen as uh, these nations converge against uh, Jerusalem. Revelation 16 speaks about the battle of Armageddon. But then, look at verse 3, Then the Lord will go out and fight against those nations as He fights in the day of battle. And this is when the Lord returns. So seven years of tribulation culminate with the battle of Armageddon. Nations will converge against Israel. They will come from the north. They will come from the east. They will come from the southwest up through Egypt as well. And you will have these nations that will converge against Israel. And then the Lord will return. And what Zechariah sees here, when he sees the Lord will go out and fight against those nations as he fights in the day of battle. I want you to write next to that verse in your Bibles two passages. And I'm going to read them, but just write down the passages. Revelation 19, verses 11 to 16. That's Revelation 19, verses 11 to 16. And then also Isaiah 63, verses 1 through 6. And I'll give you those verses again. But listen, John sees this day as well. He writes about it in Revelation 19. Isaiah sees about it. He writes about it as well. So let me just read these two passages to you. First, Revelation 19, verse 11 to 16. I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and makes war. 
His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the Word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Out of his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has this name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Now, Isaiah sees the same thing. He writes about it a little differently, but similar language. Isaiah 63, verses 1 through 6. This is what he says. Who is this coming from Edom, from Basra, with his garment stained crimson? Who is this, robed in splendor, striding forward in the greatness of his strength? It is I, speaking in righteousness, mighty to save. Why are your garments red like those of one treading the winepress? I have trodden the winepress alone. From the nations, no one was with me. I trampled them in my anger and trod them down in my wrath. Their blood spattered my garments and I stained all my clothing. For the day of vengeance was in my heart and the year of my redemption has come. I looked, but there was no one to help. I was appalled that no one gave support. So my own arm worked salvation for me and my own wrath sustained me. I trampled the nations in my anger. In my wrath, I made them drunk and poured their blood on the ground. So Zechariah sees it, John sees it, Isaiah sees it. They all write about it. They speak about the day the Lord will come. He will trample these nations. He will be victorious over all these who come against Israel. Because they're not just coming against Israel. They're coming against the God of Israel. They are seeking to destroy the very fabric of the messianic message. And so they will invade Israel with an attempt to try to destroy everything that is related to God. But the Lord himself will return. And with a fury, with a vengeance. You know, the first time Jesus comes, it's Jesus gentle, meek and mild, riding on a donkey. We love that Jesus in Sunday school classes for little kids, don't we? We like to talk about, oh, here comes Jesus. Look at the little donkey. Oh, he's coming in. Oh, it's Palm Sunday. Hey, let me tell you something. Second time he comes, it's not for kids' Sunday school classes. Unless you want to get him really scared. Because he doesn't come on a donkey, he comes on a white horse, and his robe is dipped in blood, and he's, and he's wielding a sword, and he's going to fight the nations, and he's going to destroy all that oppose him. And it's going to be a day of vengeance. And here he comes, and he returns. And in verse 4, back here, Zechariah 14, verse 4, here's the fourth statement. On that day... His feet will stand on the Mount of Olives east of Jerusalem, and the Mount of Olives will be split in two from east to west, forming a great valley with half of the mountain moving north and half moving south. So here's number four on the list. The Lord will descend to the earth upon the Mount of Olives in Jerusalem. In Acts chapter 1, verses 11 and 12, when Jesus ascended... When he left this earth after 40 days, after he rose from the dead, lived on the earth for 40 more days, then he ascends into heaven. And where does he ascend from? He ascends from the Mount of Olives. And in Acts 1, verse 11 and 12, the angel appears to the disciples who were standing there and says, Men of Israel, why do you stand here gazing into the sky? This same Jesus will return in like manner. The same place from which he ascended will be the place to which he descends when he comes for his second return. 
Now, this is the only time right here in the Old Testament that you'll find the phrase Mount of Olives. The Mount of Olives. It's referred to in the New Testament many times. It was a common place where Jesus would go with his disciples. He would sleep there. He prayed there in the Garden of Gethsemane, which, which was part of the Mount of Olives. There's this olive grove even today when we go to Israel. That's one of the places that we stop along the way. And some of the olive trees there date back more than 2,000 years. Because the thing about an olive tree, it never dies. It always, when it begins one part to die, a new shoot grows up. And so it continues to perpetuate. It just never dies unless, you know, you chop it down or kill it. But on its own, it continues to regenerate. A new shoot branches up. That's why all that picture, that typology of the stump of Jesse and a shoot will come up and it will be Messiah. Speaking about David's father and the line of David, a Messiah that comes from the line of David. So all great typology. But the Bible tells us here very specifically where Jesus returns. He's not coming to Chicago. He's not coming to Los Angeles. He is coming to the Mount of Olives in Jerusalem. And it says here that the Mount of Olives will split in two from east to west, forming a great valley with half of the mountain range moving north and half moving south. Now, geologists know they've tracked. There's a fault line called the Syrian-African fault line that goes roughly from Damascus, Syria, all the way down to Africa. And it goes directly down the Jordan Valley. Now, the Jordan Valley links the Sea of Galilee to the Dead Sea. And so right in between, you have here the Mount of Olives. The interesting thing is, the geologists note that when this fault line comes down, going north to south, it makes a jagged east to west at the Mount of Olives and then continues down south. Exactly as the Bible tells us. You know, I love it sometimes when people say, well, you Christians, you know what? You know, we believe in science. You believe in the Bible, but we believe in science. Okay, Nacho Libre, listen to me. What's interesting is sometimes science just needs to catch up with the Bible. I don't, I don't, when you read the Bible, I don't look at the Bible and think, oh, you know, science and the Bible are in conflict. No, it's just sometimes science needs to catch up with the Bible. Zechariah has no idea there's a fault line going here, but what he describes by the Holy Spirit is exactly what we know now through some scientific understanding, is that there's a fault line that actually goes east to west across. There's a small jagged turn there on the Mount of Olives, and when the Lord returns, there will be an earthquake. The Bible tells us this in Revelation, speaks of this earthquake, and the Mount of Olives will split... Along the fault line, east to west, and some of the mountain range moves north, north, some of it moves south. And now it creates this valley. And notice what happens here. Verse 5, you will flee by my mountain valley, for it will extend to Azel. We don't really know where Azel is. You will flee as you fled from the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. Then the Lord my God will come, and all the holy ones, or King James says saints... Because it's not a reference to angels. It's a reference to believers who come back with the Lord. Then the Lord my God will come and all the saints, the holy ones, with him. Now note this, verse 6. On that day, here's number 5 on your list. On that day, there will be no light, no cold or frost. It will be a unique day without daytime or nighttime. A day known to the Lord. When evening comes, there will be Light. So it tells us here that there will be neither daytime uh, nor nighttime. It will be a unique day. And you have to stop and think about it. Have you ever wondered when Jesus returns? Boy, I hope it's Eastern Standard Time. And I hope it's during the day when I can see Him. Well, the time zones won't matter. Because there's going to be this unique thing. I don't know if 
the earth stops on its axis and God continues to suspend things? I don't know. But there will be a day when all eyes will see Him. Every eye will see Him. Every knee will bow. Every person around the world. Nobody's going to be in bed. There's going to be the coming of the Lord. And in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 8, it says, The Lord overthrows the Antichrist, with the splendor of his coming. So there's something about the presence of his own glory that will illuminate the earth, and there will be no daytime or nighttime as we understand it, because the Lord will sustain it with the brightness of his glory. This is what Isaiah wrote about in Isaiah chapter 60, verses 1 through 5. He said, Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord rises upon you. See, darkness covers the earth, and thick darkness is over the peoples. And the Bible tells us that at the end of the tribulation period, great darkness will come upon the earth. But the Lord rises upon you, and His glory appears over you. Nations will come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your dawn. Lift up your eyes and look about you. All assemble and come to you. Your sons come from afar, and your daughters are carried on the arm. Then you will look and be radiant. Your heart will throb and swell with joy. The wealth on the seas will be brought to you. To you, the riches of nations will come. And so here comes this unique day. And then verse 8, on that day, this is number 6, living water will flow out from Jerusalem half to the eastern sea, which is a reference to the Dead Sea, and half to the western sea, the Mediterranean, in summer and in winter. So this is number six. What it tells us is that living water will flow from Jerusalem, half to the Dead Sea, half to the Mediterranean Sea. You have to picture again. Here is the Lord Jesus now. He's come again. The mountain range of the Mount of Olives has split, moving north to south. It's creating a valley that goes east to west. And it's going to link the Mediterranean and the Dead Sea along this valley. So that when water, living water, flows, and you can go home later and read Ezekiel 47, verses 1 through 9. In Ezekiel 47, it speaks about a river that flows from under the throne of God... This is, it's a literal river because Ezekiel is told to go measure it. And as he puts down a measuring rod, it gets deeper and deeper as he walks. But there will be a river of fresh water that flows both towards the Mediterranean and towards down the Dead Sea. Now, Jerusalem is about 2,500 feet above sea level. The Dead Sea is the lowest point on the face of the earth. It's 1,400 feet below sea level. So this water will just rush into the Dead Sea, and this fresh water will turn the Dead Sea into fresh water. Now, how many of you have been with me to Israel? Let me see your hands. And how many of you have... uh, Swam in the Dead Sea. All right. So the Dead Sea is 35% salinity. When you go to Ocean City, it's 3.5% salinity. The regular ocean. The Dead Sea is 10 times the salinity. The Great Salt Lake in Utah, 17%. Okay. So the Dead Sea is, is, has the highest concentration of salt on the face of the earth. Not a living thing is in it. Not a bacteria, not a fish, not nothing can't live in that kind of a salt content. So that's the one charming thing when you go into the Dead Sea, you know you won't get bitten by anything. Okay, it's a little slimy, it's a little oily. I describe it as swimming in jello. It's kind of a unique thing. It's kind of a weird thing at the same time because you, the buoyancy, because of the salinity, you can't really swim under it. You're not supposed to anyway. You just kind of float. You bob there. It's like swimming in oily jello. It's a great experience. Um, but not after you've shaven. <laughs> Take it from me. Uh, just, just my face, all right, just my face. But um, 
But anyhow, uh, the Dead Sea, Ezekiel 47 says, will become fresh water. And Ezekiel even prophesies there in chapter 47 that there will be fishermen who line along the Dead Sea and they will fish because of this living water that comes from the throne of God and turns the Dead Sea into fresh water. So if you really want to get ahead of the game, buy a tackle and bait shop and set it up down by the Dead Sea. They'll think you're crazy, but it's going to become fresh water one day. You'll be down there making money hand over fist. All right, here we go. Verse 9. We've got to get through this chapter because this is, we've got to conclude this and the time is about escaped us. The Lord, verse 9, the Lord will be king. This is a beautiful verse, isn't it? The Lord will be king over the whole earth. And on that day, there will be one Lord and his name, the only name. It's number 7 on your list. That there will be one Lord and his name, the only name. No other kings, no other presidents, no other dictators, no other ruthless leaders. There's going to be one Lord and one King, and Jesus is going to rule and reign over the entire earth. Won't that be a great day? You won't have to vote for anybody, okay? Because Jesus is not running for office. He will be King, whether anybody likes it or not. And trust me, you will like it a lot. Because it's far better than anything we've ever known or experienced here on earth with Jesus in charge. Great verse. Verse 10. The whole land from Geba to Ramon, south of Jerusalem, will become like the Arabah. But Jerusalem will be raised up and remain in its place from the Benjamin gate to the side of the first gate to the corner gate and from the tower of Hananel to the royal wine press. It will be inhabited. Never again will it be destroyed. Jerusalem will be secure. So we know this is prophetic, right? Because when has Jerusalem ever been secure? It's never been. I mean, you know, everything is tenuous and peace deals and treaties and stuff. It's never been secure, but it will be on that day. Verse 12, this is the plague with which the Lord will strike all the nations that fought against Jerusalem. This is back to kind of the punishment of the, those nations that converged against Jerusalem at Armageddon. Listen to this. Their flesh will rot while they are still standing on their feet. Their eyes will rot in their sockets and their tongues will rot in their mouths. Just a very horrible description here. Now, some read this and they say, well, this is a description of a nuclear bomb that goes off. And, you know, by the way, neutron technology, Israel is the most advanced in neutron technology than any other nation on the planet, including our own. Um, and, and yet, I'm not sure that this is a description of the result of, you know, let's say there's a nuclear explosion. I mean, the fact is that this is very descriptive of what happened when the atomic bomb was dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki this kind of a thing, the melting of the flesh. But more likely, as it relates to the whole context, this is just going to be the result that happens to the enemies of God at the appearance of His coming. Now, whether or not there's going to be some discharge of a nuclear bomb at the same time when, when all of this battle is going on or not, I don't know. But, but just at the splendor of His coming, I think His enemies, the Lord's enemies, will melt away. Verse 13, On that day... Here's number eight. On that day, men will be stricken by the Lord with great panic. Each man will seize the hand of another and they will attack each other. Judah too will fight at Jerusalem. The wealth of all the surrounding nations will be collected. Great quantities of gold and silver and clothing. 
A similar plague will strike the horses and mules, the camels and donkeys, and all the animals in those camps. So this is a combination of speaking about what happens in the conflict and the war, but as well it says there about how the surrounding nations will be bringing great quantities of gold and silver and clothing. So in other words, Jerusalem will become wealthy and influential as a city again following the battle of Armageddon. Verse 16. And then the survivors from all the nations that have attacked Jerusalem will go up year after year to worship the King, the Lord Almighty, and to celebrate, notice this, of all the feasts, the Feast of Tabernacles. If any of the peoples of the earth do not go up to Jerusalem to worship the King, the Lord Almighty, they will have no rain. If the Egyptian people, it's interesting how he singles out the Egyptians, he says, if the Egyptian people do not go up and take part, they will have no rain. The Lord will bring on them the plague he inflicts on the nations that do not go up to celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles. This will be the punishment of Egypt and the punishment of all the nations that do not go up to celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles. Now, I'll summarize all this. Let me just read through the end. And on that day, this is number nine, holy to the Lord will be inscribed on the bells of the horses and the cooking pots in the Lord's house will be like the sacred bowls in front of the altar. This is number nine on your list. And what he's saying is that what was previously common will be made holy to the Lord. In Exodus 39, verse 30, that phrase, holy to the Lord, was inscribed upon the diadem or the crown that was worn by the high priest. And the high priest was holy to the Lord. But in this day, when the Lord returns, everything that was normally common will be made holy. Because it's all in the presence of the Lord now at this point. In verse 21, every pot in Jerusalem and Judah will be holy to the Lord Almighty. And all who come to sacrifice will take some of the pots and cook in them. And on that day, here's number 10, there will no longer be a Canaanite in the house of the Lord Almighty. Now the Canaanite is just a term for all that was profane because the Canaanite people were profane and immoral. And this is another way of saying that everything previously considered profane will be made pure in the presence of the Lord and at His coming. Now put all this together. Why is it that only the Feast of Tabernacles was mentioned when the Jews celebrated several feasts? Probably because the Feast of Tabernacles was something that the Jews began to celebrate to commemorate their deliverance from Egypt. They would set up booths and they would live in their house, in these booths in their backyard instead of living in their houses. It's also called the Feast of Sukkot because a booth translates in Hebrew as a Sukkot, a booth. And they would live in this temporary shelter because they never wanted to forget how they were wandering for 40 years in the wilderness and yet God took care of them and He delivered them from their slavery in Egypt to the Promised Land. When Jesus returns and sets Himself up on the throne in Jerusalem, ruling for a thousand years... People on the earth who survive and who love Him and who believe in Him and who now enter into that millennial kingdom will once again worship Him. And they will be required to go up every year for an annual feast, the Feast of Tabernacles. Only now, the greater message that's been fulfilled in Christ is simply this, that He is the great deliverer. And He is the one who has delivered us, not from the slavery of Egypt, but from the greater slavery of sin. And that there is great rest in His presence now. Because even as the Israelites would rest in these booths for seven days to celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles and to remember how God delivered them, this will be the ultimate rest when you're in the presence of the Lord. And there even seems to be here this reference to the sacrifices, not because they are uh, sacrificing 
uh, animals again as if those were the way to be atoned for. But it's, it's kind of looking back to commemorate how Christ has fulfilled the whole sacrificial system. You know, in the same way, we celebrate communion because we look back at the cross. Well, these people during the millennial kingdom will be still sacrificing, but not because the sacrifices bring atonement, but because they're looking back to the cross and they're thankful that Christ is the fulfillment of all these things. And all those things that were common and profane will in that day be holy to the Lord. And as I think about the challenge for us, even as this book concludes, I think to myself, okay, so... All those things that are common now will be considered holy to the Lord then. But isn't it good for us now, even now, to practice in our lives being holy to the Lord? That we would be living testimonies to people who would look upon our lives and see the holiness of the Lord. Because we want to let our light so shine that men will look on our good deeds and glorify our Father which is in heaven that the example that we set and the testimony that we live will speak to the holiness of the Lord, that our lives are devoted as holy unto Him so that all who see us will not just see us, but they will see the goodness and the love of the Lord. Isn't all this stuff rich that Zechariah writes about? Look, folks, the Lord is coming again, and He calls us to be ready. He's given us all this so that we might know of His imminent return. There's no reason that anybody should be unprepared and caught off guard after reading Zechariah because He explains these things to us that we would be ready and expectant and looking forward to His second coming. Amen? Let's pray there. Lord, thank You for this time as we consider the wonder of Your Word and the the way that You... Give us in advance understanding about your return. We just thank you, Lord, and we just look forward to your second coming. We don't know when that might be, but we want to be ready. And until you come, may it be inscribed upon our hearts, holy to the Lord. Until you come, may people look upon us and they see the example of Christ in us. That even though we're common, that we might be set apart as holy unto the Lord. Father, thank you that you loved us so much that you gave Jesus. And I just want to pray, Father, for those who are here tonight that are not ready for your second coming. May we all be ready. May there be no excuse, Lord, as we look at these words and in the book of Zechariah. May we be prepared. May our hearts be anticipating your second coming. And for those who don't know you, Lord, I pray tonight that even now they would accept you as Lord and Savior. They would put their faith and trust in you. They would surrender their lives to your Lordship. That they would be ready, that we would all be ready. Even as Jesus said, lift up your heads, for your redemption draws near. May we be watching and waiting. May we be living our lives in holy anticipation of your soon and coming King. Thank you, Father, for sending Jesus to die for us. We await with glad hearts his second coming. May you find us ready, Lord, and waiting. In Jesus' name.
We pray these things. And everybody said, Amen and Amen. If you want to know more about Christ, you don't know if you have a relationship with Him or not, come and seek us out after the service. Pastors will be standing up down front. God bless you all. Have a great night. Next week, we'll be picking up with the last of the minor prophets, that famous Italian prophet, Malachi. We'll see you then. Okay, it's Malachi. We'll see you then.